Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Today, we have with us Amber Weir. She is a local author born and raised in Dunedin, Florida, self-labeled as old-souled, lesbian, and formerly disabled. Amber uses the hardships that shaped her as an inspiration for her writing. She believes that writing has the power to heal and help you overcome limitations. After compiling years of poetry, Amber published her first book, Silver Linings, a collection of edifying poetry through Two Penny Publishing in 2022 and received a bestseller recognition on Amazon. Her second book, Kaleidoscope Eyes, is a short work of prose young adult fiction that is semi-autobiographical and highlights the importance of self-advocacy at a young age. Amber prefers not to be bound by any set genre and is currently working on a new series of young adult books that welcome readers into worlds of fiction, sci-fi, and fantasy. That sounds cool. In addition to writing, Amber fully enjoys her work as a massage therapist. And outside of work, she enjoys downtime with her wife and family doing crafts, being out by the water, meditating, or taking quiet time to read. Welcome, Amber. Hello. It's good to be here. I'm excited. We're so excited to have you, Amber. Thanks for coming on our podcast to share your story. I'm going to read a quote to you by Brene Brown that we read to all of our um, guests here. It goes like this. One day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Amber, last night I read your second book, Kaleidoscope Eyes. And I know from the introduction that Kara just gave you that that was a sem- it's a semi-autobiography about your life. And I read about this young girl who was told that by the time she was 13 years old, she would be blind. And it describes some of the terrifying things, or at least it terrified me being in a doctor's office as a young girl and kind of people talking uh, above you and not to you and and basically you hearing that you might be blind. And I, I didn't know that was, you know, like you, I kind of knew it was you, but I was kind of questioning it in the book. And I was wondering, like, there were some terrible things that happened to that young girl. And um, now I'm looking at you and I'm wondering is how much of that story is your story? And um, can you share that with us? Uh, well, a lot of it is totally me. Like I exaggerated sibling reactions, friend reactions. A lot of, of what's at the end is completely fictional. It's just stuff that made me process everything that I was going through and kind of got me on the road to, I'm going to just figure this out. 
<laughs> That's what that story was, a little girl figuring it out. Yeah, take us through that story. I was four years old when I was in a doctor's office being told that I was going to go blind and at 13. And it seemed like a very long time away, but it also kind of it made me more mature as I went along, just because I was preparing for the worst scenario of my what I thought was going to be the hardest thing for me to overcome. And that was living with a, a blindness and not being able to see anything, anything that I could currently see, not being able to interact with people because everybody just made it seem like it was going to be just fine, just normal. I was going to be disabled and there was nothing I could do about it. So your your family said basically was, okay, you're going to be blind by 13, but it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And we'll just, we'll make do. Yeah. My father um, was diagnosed with the same issue and we definitely didn't see any issues with him, but I guess they assumed I was worse, but they didn't have any answers. What was the diagnosis? Sorry to interrupt. What was the actual diagnosis? Do you remember that? Yeah, the the way that they introduced it to me was macular degeneration. And I mean, and when I say to me, it's I hear them telling my stepmother and my uh, father that that macular degeneration is typically for older people. And it just happens to be starting when I'm younger. And I'm like, well, this already doesn't sound like the diagnosis that I should have if it's typically for older people. And so me, I feel like I've always been inquisitive and I always wanted to ask questions. And I don't think I got to ask any questions until I was at least 10 or 11. And like, they just did not give me the opportunity to know more about it or anything on my own. And even teachers in school, I would get told that I would not be able to make changes, like learn Braille. And I asked if I could learn Braille and prepare. And and they would say, well, if you think you're going to go blind, you will go blind. If you don't, then you won't. And I just, I was baffled by this and said, you know, that doesn't make too much sense that that would have control over how this is going to go. <laughs> Basically, your mind, your mind could control whether you go blind or not. Yeah. And I was like, nah, this is an actual thing. And I had gone to disability schools. And so I had seen a lot of people who were dealing with blindness, deafness, and these all these impairments. And I was worried, like, I'm never going to be prepared. It talk about that because in your book, it talks about how you, well, the, the character in the book, I don't know if this is you, had to go to the doctor every four months as a child. Yeah, yeah, I, I, or regularly. Had to go to the doctor. I had to go to ESC classes. They taught me a lot of things, but they refused to go to the lengths of Braille and like typing on home keys. Like that was not... <laughs> helpful at all. It, it, it's nice in the real world, you know, work and stuff, but it's not not what's going to help me, you know, manage a situation for not seeing something. And so I closed, I used to practice every day doing things that I could see a blind person that I was in school with doing, like walking through the halls and testing the the areas with the canes and and things like that. And so I would practice my eyes closed and learn how to walk in areas that I was familiar with already. And 
I mean, it, it, it never bothered me to technically do it, but I didn't want people to assume that I was going too far to prepare, like practicing way too early or convincing myself it was just going to happen. And But I didn't think that anybody was helping me. So I was doing it on my own. So they, you were put into a disability school knowing because they knew or they assumed by the age of 13, you would be blind. So they wanted you to be enrolled in that school. Yeah. I I think sign language was involved. I learned a little bit then. It was it was a great experience. <laughs> Isn't sign language for deaf people, not blind people? Yeah, yeah. They they it was an impaired school. It was a disability impaired. They had TV programs and they had sign language for the kids that were hearing impaired and they had um they had sessions with ESE classes and you learned how to cope with your life and what's an ese class amber what is that i forget the exact term that they use it's it's essentially anybody with a disability or um even autism and things like that they they arrange a separate class for you to go to it's like a special ed thing but you have to i got pulled out of classes to go to these things once a week it's exceptional student education for children with disabilities. Yeah. I like the way they put that. I do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice um, tool for it if, you, if you're given the right tools. And I, I feel like I was not. But I, I don't know if that honestly comes from my family not approaching each concern that I had and asking for the school to provide those services for me or because my my family didn't want me to learn how to tie my shoes. They didn't want me to learn. My dad wanted me to wear Velcro shoes instead of tie, learning to tie my shoes. They didn't want me to work. They didn't want me to do anything that seemed to kind of give my life some experience and value and and it just they wanted me to stay in this little confined you know situation instead of learning to cope yes what so you you have you have a sister just one sister i have um many siblings but i was raised with my uh full-blooded sister and so did did your parents want the same for her or were you singled out in that way where you they wanted to keep you small i was singled out why do you think what was what was their motivation, do you think, for what what was their what was the benefit for everyone to keep you like that? Oh, I hate to say it, but disability money, a lot of yeah, a, a lot of my home life revolved around, oh, so and so has disability money and this my stepbrother had a dis- speech impediment problem and and I feel like when whenever I noticed that nobody was working, that was that was like the the thing, oh, nobody's working. No, how are they getting money? This is why they're how they're getting their money. This is what they're doing. They're using me. And that's kind of what started my fight with really just getting away from that situation. Not just that situation, but definitely a big portion of, of it. That is the level of awareness. And I'm assuming you've noticed all of this before your 13th birthday. Um, what you're talking about. I, your level of awareness as a kid is amazing to me. I I like to I like to say that people call me an old soul, but I feel like I matured at like eight. 
<laughs> I mean, I I had no idea what I was doing at four when I got told that, hey, you're going to go blind. And, um, you know, all these fears started setting in like, you know, what am I going to do when I'm traveling to school? What am I going to do when I'm doing this? And then at some point it grew from that to what am I going to do when I want to move away? And then I realized I'm not going to be able to move away if I don't take care of it. And, you know, and then I just started worrying I'm never going to get out. And because I was in some tough situations at home as well, and not just in school and getting what I wanted education wise like that, but just I really didn't think I was going to have the leverage to get out because I didn't know about the money until a certain age. And I didn't know how to gain control of it. So by the time I was 17, I finally figured out, okay, I'm just going to have to go because it's it's my it's my only chance is to get out. So at 17, because in your book, you moved out and you, you were on your bike and you were riding your bike and you were blissful. You were in the book. I, I know that it, not everything in the book is true, but you moved in with your sister. But I, I felt that I felt that joy that you escaped. It felt like you escaped this terrible place that was trying to repress you. And it sounded like the doctors were in cahoots. Like I definitely got the impression that this was like something that your parents were trying to do was get some disability money. It's familiar to me. I kind of felt that when you I was reading your writing and uh, I felt you break free from that. So I have a couple of questions, Amber. One, as a child, did you feel like the doctor was in cahoots with this disability thing? It just seems so wrong. Like macular degeneration is not a young child's disease. Why aren't we sending this young young woman, young girl, whatever, all over the country, the planet to try and figure out what the heck is going on? She can't be blind at 13. Macular degeneration can't be it. Like, let's let's not accept this, right? And and that didn't happen. So I was like, gosh, why is this doctor like going along with this? And then, yeah, answer that, please. I uh, So when I actually got diagnosed with cataracts. Mm, I know I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> when did that happen? Because that's really different from macular degeneration, yes. <laughs> from what I understand. It's very different. That's fixable. <laughs> <laughs> very fixable. So long story short, my mother told me after I told her I was which is your stepmother no my biological mother okay you're I talked to her and I was like hey I'm getting this surgery to fix my eyes because I was told it's cataracts and she was like oh yeah you were born with it I just let the doctors tell you that or told told the doctors that you'd handle it when you got older and I was flabbergasted I was like I cannot believe I spent 22 years misdiagnosed by endless amounts of doctors that just made up something from the previous doctor. And I tried different avenues. I went to specialists. I was like, just take a look at my eyes currently. Don't worry about what the other doctor said. Just tell me what you see. <laughs> and when I actually got a hold of a doctor and told me, I'm not seeing anything wrong with your retinas. Macular degeneration is based on a retina issue. He's like, your retinas are fine. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've been told my whole life that my retinas are an issue. And he's like, try cataracts. I'm seeing cataracts. And so I went to a cataract specialist. And on top of the cataracts, I had a birth defect with my pupils. And I had astigmatism. So they're both pretty gnarly on their own. 
because they affect your near sight and your far sight, you know, is very important with those. And then the cataracts takes away color and depth perception and certain things that you essentially all of it together just it made a mess of my eyes and basically my pupil condition, my pupils were enlarged to the point where they were practically touching the white of my eye instead of being normal sized. So I was having too much light, too much distortion, and it just, it builds for a perfect mess that I just, I assumed I was going to go blind like everybody was telling me. Wow. (laughs) So I want to back up for a second. So you said by at 22, they, um, you were having cataract surgery. So now, meanwhile, we've gotten through 13 and you never went blind. So I, I, I kind of want to back up and go to that. Like you were preparing to go blind at 13. And I'm assuming when you're getting close to that age, you're like, okay, here it comes. And it does. Yeah. Like, am I going to wake up on my 13th birthday and I'm not going to be able to see? And did you notice your vision starting to deteriorate at all, or if it was, or maybe that, you know, who knows, it would have been in my head and I'd be like, oh, I think I can't see that now just because it was, I was told really just because I was told this. So can you get us, yeah. Can you walk us through a little bit more of your teenage years with that? I used to run, I mean, it it sounds so kooky. Like I went too, too far and I tested myself too much and all for nothing in the end. But I I used to try to test myself like, oh, I can see this. And and then I'd go back the next day and I'd try it again and make sure like, you know, hey, <laughs> how's it going today? But I, I did see definitely every year because at some point they drop you down from constant watch to every six months or or once a year. But I believe up until a certain point, I was every six months for a long time. And so and I I would notice my head hurts. I can't see this thing. I'm I need a new prescription. So we'd go in and it became a hassle for my family to have to take me. So they started making a big fuss about it, not just when I was young, but all the way until I was, you know, 17. They were like, I can't why do we have to keep taking you to these doctors? You know, and I'm like, because my eyes hurt, my head hurts. I've had migraines every day until I the surgery relieved about 75% of them because the strain on my eyes was so, so much that I just, I couldn't imagine the the amount of relief until I actually had it. And, and, and it's like, wow, that's so much different. So the same family that wanted to keep you in this disability box were starting to get frustrated with the fact that you were disabled. Yeah. So my my stepmother started taking care of me by herself when my father got arrested. And he always wanted me to stick to like not tying my shoes. And they insisted that there was certain things that I should never do. Like household chores became a problem uh, with them because I, I couldn't see. So I wasn't doing them right. So they they monetized everything to like, well, this is where you're going to this is where you're going to fit the best. And, and we don't want you to have to do this. And, and that's actually what crippled the rest of my, my childhood with them because they could find my day-to-day activities to certain things. And I was open to more abuse from my stepbrother 
from my stepmom's family. Okay. Okay. Good. Keep going. And then when I did that, I basically, I realized they just didn't want to make things better for me. And it was, it was, I was always one thing after another with my family, just control wise. So I understand at some point I decided that I didn't want to be under their thumb and I had to make changes. And the first thing I think I did was just, sorry. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Take your time. I really talked to people in school, um, tried to push for therapy, tried to push for things. Um, I, it's, it's a whole uh, pile of things that uh, kind of made this turning cycle of changes for me. Um, one of them is lost for me. One of them is um, I didn't want to be abused anymore um, at home. I didn't want to be taken, taken for granted anymore. And um, I just wanted to have my own life. So yeah, when I was 13, I was going through a lot. I wasn't just dealing with the disability anymore. I was dealing with the abuse and the losses and the conflicts that I constantly had to deal with being told what I couldn't do and what I could do. So I was pushing limits. I was I was just basically, I feel like a, a goat just bashing my head against like all these brick brick walls of conflict that I had going on just being more aware of like this isn't normal anymore and and at some point I I think a lot of people are in those situations and they go this is normal and then at some some point you realize your friends don't have this issue your 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 friends are actually kind of bothered by it when you talk about stuff like that and you're like so it's not normal and so that I would say at 13, I was like, yeah, I'm not blind and I'm happy I'm not blind. But when is it going to happen? And when the heck am I going to get out of everything else I'm in? Like, when is life going to be done? Because I was at some point very depressed and I did not I didn't understand why I had to live such a complicated life. And I had to make all these decisions by myself. And so 13 to probably I, I I dealt with depression from the age of nine, 10, maybe to roughly 16, 17, even. It's when I kind of decided, no, I, I'm making this choice. I'm moving on. I'm, I'm done. I can't can't confine myself to this anymore. You, you, you consciously said, I'm going to break this cycle. Yes. Yes. Where a lot of people are in that cycle and it's all they know. And, and they just, that's life. Okay. We, we, you know, get on disability, we suppress everyone, we don't validate, you know, and they just stay in that cycle. And maybe that's where your mom and dad were. I don't know, but sometimes we just don't know how to break out of a cycle. And we don't mean, we don't, we just don't know any better. And, and so I'm so proud of you for breaking out of that and finding your true voice and your true self. I'm curious though, like when you, when you hit 13 and you didn't go blind, were you like, you know what, maybe, maybe this isn't going to happen. Maybe, maybe I can like, did it give you hope and be like, you know what, this demise that I've had for nine years is not true. Yeah. Maybe a lot of things in my life aren't true. Yeah. I, yeah, that definitely, that definitely is part of what clicked for me. I would say the doctor's thing, I had always been like, well, 
why are you saying this? And then I go to a different doctor because you stop, you know, being able to see me. And then they tell me something different because it doesn't fit. But they want to kind of keep you. They they don't want to say something so dramatic that you're like, well, that's not that's not anything like what the doctor over there said. And so they want to keep you coming back and being treated. And I just felt like that was all they were doing was just, okay, well, tell it a little differently than what they said, because I don't know what this is, you know, but it's not that. And I don't want to scare them off and send them somewhere else for more tests and whatever. So I, I feel like that's what doctors did to me. And maybe they do it to other people and doctors don't have every answer. And so it was up to me to kind of look into it at 13 when I didn't go blind. And I started questioning like, yeah, I'm not blind. When am I going to go blind? Am I even going to go blind? Like, and then I was like, you mean I practiced all this and didn't need it. (laughs) And I just was like, well, I guess it's a good experience. And then it's like, okay, well, what do I need to learn? What do I have an issue with that I have to do? And then it just starts a, I like I said, inquisitive pattern of, well, what, what part of my life is not matching to what it should be, you know? And just taking those steps was not as hard as figuring it out. Amber, in your book, the main character, the, the little girl who was growing up knowing she was going to go blind at 13 years old and she didn't and she moved out and she was on her bike and she got hit. Did that happen to you? No. Oh, thank God. I was like, Oh my God. It was a crazy dream. It was a crazy dream that I had. Oh, good. Okay. It goes to tell honestly how in depth I was just ready. I was like, just do it. Just get it over with and just do it. I was I was in a very bad place in my in my youth where that was that was actually okay with me to just have it happen and and I was I was going to deal with it like that and now I look back and I'm like I didn't I didn't have to worry so hard about something that wasn't going to happen but it it kind of people have to read your book, right? If they want to know what we're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I I honestly I wanted people to feel like they could read my book and say that well I have the, a similar story and I have a similar issue from my childhood that I had to make my own strides to get out of. Or you know nobody's per nobody's perfect. I had. I had my failures with some teachers, but I had really great successes with teachers too. And I had really bad outcomes with doctors experience wise. I just feel like I learned a lot and and I feel like people could learn from maybe what I've dealt with and maybe make better better strides than I did to get out of their situations and not feel like they have to settle with what they're being told. It's a common story that we hear on on this podcast, right? That you 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 can overcome some really terrible things as a child and um, get to the other side of it for sure, and not not even know how much you were overcoming at the time. Maybe I I didn't know how much I was overcoming. I look back now, and I honestly I thank a few of the people in my life that really showed me this isn't normal and you should be concerned and you should really 
stick up for your own safety and you should. And so getting out of my home wasn't easy. And there were attempts several times growing up to get out sooner. Police and stuff, they just did not have the protocols that they do now when it comes to children talking about abuse and talking about, hey, this is happening. And I I don't think that it's safe for me to be here anymore. Or I don't think that this is people who care about me anymore, you know, and things have just definitely progressed and gotten better now. I always encourage like people, if you're not, if you're not feeling it, that you're safe, (laughs) like you're probably not, (laughs) please like reach out to people and, and you're probably not. Yeah. And that's the common thread we hear is that young people like you and I, I, and there's a lot of people like you um, that don't think they're special, but they are, have this tremendous intuition as a child or as a young adult that things aren't right. And I need to advocate for myself. I don't think many children, they they look to the adults to advocate for them. Right. And so you are a self-advocator and that's what you're promoting in your life. And so that we hear that often on this podcast. I knew something in my gut wasn't right and I had to make it right. I knew something wasn't right. And I I had to figure it out on my own. Kind of like I would, what kid would question that? You're four years old. Your parents and the doctors are telling you something. So talk about that, your self-advocacy. And Kara, I know you have a question too. Hold on to it. I self-advocacy wasn't a wasn't what I thought it was growing up until I realized what self-advocating for myself that that's what I was doing. I thought that I was being rebellious. I thought that I was just being too difficult with things. I had basically I had learned how to tie my shoes before my sister did because they just told me I couldn't. I <laughs> they um yeah, I, I literally look at all the things that I've done and I I realized I was just telling myself, you know what? They said you can't, but you can. And self-advocacy goes beyond just your own safety and your own personal strides. Like it, it goes to like basically learning more about yourself and admitting that you might need therapy sometimes or you might need to know more about why other people are doing what they're doing so that you can decide this this is definitely not right uh like i looked at a lot of my family i was very observant growing up i wasn't raised as a middle child but i definitely acted like a middle child <laughs> and um i observed why does this person do this how are they going to respond with that and i took a lot of that into account when I did anything in my house. Like uh, if I if I wanted to learn orchestra because I wanted to do music or I wanted to do something for me, I would look into how how somebody would react if I tried to to go out and do that because that's for me, you know. And it worked out a lot of the times, but then like a couple months in, they're like, nah, nah, and I would have to let it go. But I got to do it and I enjoyed it. And um, but the self-advocacy of I feel like it was an everyday occurrence for me, but it might just be a one time occurrence for somebody where they're like, you know, my doctor didn't tell me this, but I feel like it's an issue like health 
issues are every day in my field. People come across stuff that they have found out from one doctor, but they didn't find it out from the previous one. And I'm like, it happens. I'm sorry that it happened. And, you know, I'm glad that you found that out for yourself, you know, but for for me, I just self-advocating for me didn't seem like it was that that difficult in the sense of knowing what I wanted, but doing it was was tricky because you had to be care. I had to be careful with family and how they would handle it, basically, like therapy. I always had to get my teachers to catch on that I was not doing okay, And I had to leave like a note or I had to just tell my teacher, like, I'm being bullied and I I'm being bullied for things that are going on at home. Like nobody should know that my father was arrested and yet they did. So I was being bullied for that. And I had to go and kind of get myself into therapy so I could deal with why people do these harsh things to each other. Why, why do I have, have such a tough, tough family household right now? And I, I don't know. I hope that is a little clear. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, actually. And and what I was going to say earlier is about being an advocate for yourself. I think it happens at all ages, whether, you know, you need to be an advocate for your health, for your safety, for the joy that you want in your life. And I think people need to know that they can be their own advocate. I think there are many people that just look to either look to their parents or they look to the doctor to be the advocate for them. And no, 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 this is, this is your responsibility. If you care about your health, your safety, your joy, et cetera, et cetera. You, you must it, no matter what other people are telling you. And it's tough as a child, I would think more so than anything, or for the elderly, I think too, you get to a certain point and your kids think they know what's best for you, even if it's not what you want for you. So yeah, I see the elderly situation a lot, but I growing up, yeah, I definitely had to make sure that my self-advocacy was on all the time and it's it's at any age I do it now when I just am having we just went through some stuff in my wife's family medical wise and it's like so now we have to be self-advocating that because it's it's in every any any age every age um and different situations i would say that i wrote um a poem once in my first book that spoke about that every time i thought i was going to get support from somebody and then i talked to my sister who endured a lot of the same stuff not exactly the same but we were there for each other for a lot of things and I expected my older sister to kind of help me get out of it and it didn't it didn't happen and I looked at her later on and I was like why didn't we help each other get out of this situation and I think one of the things that she told me was that she thought I would have the strength to do it myself if she saw me if she saw her do something she thought that I would have the strength and I was terrified as a kid to do anything that was anything to set off people in the house like she left to go live with our birth mother and that's how we started communicating again um with our birth mother was that that transition for my sister and i looked at her like aren't you gonna help me aren't you gonna 
tell me to come live there? Aren't you going to tell me how to do what you just did at all? And my sister and I had some challenges with my father going to jail and my abuse with my stepbrother continued. And I thought she would help me figure it out, like how to get out of that abuse cycle. And it, it didn't, it wasn't up to her. It was up to me to figure it out because like she said, she thought I had the internal strength. She overestimated me and I didn't know that I did until I kind of had that internal push. Like the one push that I had was my stepfamily talked about moving to North Carolina and I didn't want to be there when they did that. If they left, I was going to be stuck with them forever in another state that I didn't have any idea how to do anything. So this was, that was that chance. That was that time I'm going to leave because I can't imagine myself going and fixing my life if I go that far away from where I'm comfortable here. So yeah, that's, it, it happens for everything. Good for you, Amber. Good for you. Amber, if you were to go back and be able to talk to that little four-year-old girl who was sitting on that examination table, shivering and cold, as you described in the book, which I'm sure she was, and scared. What would you tell that little four-year-old? I I would tell her she was doing exactly what she needed to do to be, like, I am who I am because I was I was aware back then. And I am who I am because of all the things that happened to me. And I, I do think that they shouldn't have happened. And I do think that there's a lot that was not fair to to that little girl that she had to go through a whole life of but I would have just said it is going to turn out okay and it you'll be so much more than this right now like I never thought I'd be here but I'm happy I'm happy with the life that I have because I was insistent and I would just I would have just said you know keep doing all the inquisitive stuff that you want. Keep fighting for what you want because it mattered. It mattered a lot. I like that. And so Amber, today, how are you doing today? Obviously you can see the cataract surgery went well. It greatly reduced the migraines that you were having. So are you relatively healthy then with as far as your eyesight and managing the other issues that were going on with it? Yeah, like formerly formerly disabled is awesome. When I heard that, that's like a big, that's an awesome claim, former. And I don't see any glasses on your face. No, um, I still have to wear reading glasses sometimes. I I did my surgery about six years ago and the, maybe a little bit more than six years. Yeah. Um, but they told me, oh, you're going to have to come in for a tune up in of sorts, like, and it's, it's time I should go back and I need to go back. I've been going through some stuff in, in my wife's family health and whatnot that I was like, Oh, I'll just put it off for a little, not a great idea. I'm definitely going back. (laughs) But other than that, I am great. I'm glad to be driving. I, I mental health wise, I've come a long way from all that. I had that depression. I had a lot of self-doubt growing up. And then even even until I met my wife and I'm like, are you sure you love me? Like, what? you know, so there was it still definitely wasn't a thing I had to deal with until I got to a point 
in my life where I was more aware of mental health and how to manage it and things like, you know, just accepting my life is actually doing pretty well now. I'm happy. I'm married. I work my my full-time job is massage and then I, I write my life or I uh, write other lives like fantasy fiction or whatnot. And I try to create a world where anybody can be included. I try to be open for everybody because I, I just, I'm that much better with my life right now. Super proud of you, Amber. <laughs> thank you. Keep it up. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and being vulnerable, hanging out for us for a little while. Patty's going to let everybody know how they can reach you and find your books. Yeah. So your website is aroseware.com. And that is A-R-O-S-E-W-E-I-R.com. Your email address is aroseIN92. So it's A-R-O-S-E-I-N92 at gmail.com. So if you want to get in touch with Amber, find out about her books that she's written, you can go to her website, aroseware.com. You could email her at arosein92 at gmail.com. You could find her on Instagram and Facebook, aroseware. That's A-R-O-S-E-W-E-I-R. Her books are her semi-autobiography book that I was mentioning throughout this interview is called Kaleidoscope Eyes. It's a quick read. It's a really great book. I recommend it. And then your other book, which is a collection of life of edifying poetry, um, still called Silver Linings. And you can find those books on Amazon. Thank you so much, Amber, for being with us today. I really appreciate you guys letting me uh, share. Um, it's It's hard to admit when you know, you don't have control over your life. And it's hard to admit when you have uh, all these situations happening to you. And and I just really, I'm glad to talk about self-advocating for myself, but I'm hoping that everybody finds it helpful to kind of put a piece in that hasn't been there, that they can advocate for themselves, that they don't have to settle for being told that they can only do so much with their life or that they can can only do what is the situation that they're in. And and it could be anything from childhood to senior. Um, there's a million different things that people try to make you be who you're not and make you live a life that you don't want to live or you know, tell you this is the scenario and that's what that's what you're gonna have. So I'm I'm happy to try to have people break out and do their own thing and don't settle for less and all the things that it took me twenty two years or more to figure it out. So Hey, some people it takes a lot longer than that to figure it out. So good for you. <laughs> yeah, some never figure it out. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Amber. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say.
See, I don't want you to talk anymore because it might be on the podcast. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com. No, sorry.